Hello and welcome to the Sacred City Life Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Justin Dean. This podcast is aimed at helping you follow Jesus in the everyday normal rhythms of life, something that is getting increasingly difficult to do in this crazy culture we're living in. And today I've got um, our deacon of Sacred City Youth with me. How's it going, guys? Alex Tate. And I got my pastoral assistant, Kevin Noor. Hey, guys. And what we want to do today, um, this is going to be a little interesting, I think, because um, we're trying to get ahead of the game on our podcast. And so we're actually going to be, normally we might call this a beyond the sermon podcast, except it's a before the sermon podcast. Because actually this Sunday, but here's the, the, you guys are living in some kind of time warp here, right? Because when you hear this, it's actually going to be beyond the sermon. So I'm actually preaching on um, gospel renewal this Sunday, and um, but we're going to talk about it on the podcast. We're on, this is a Monday. This is a Monday, so you know, almost a week before I preach on it. Uh, but when it comes out to you, it's going to be after the sermon. All right. So I know that's some some weird time warp stuff. But what we want to talk about is we actually we're going to go over an article written by Tim Keller. And this article was written in uh, 2000. Yep. This article was written in 2000, so 21 years ago. When I came across this article, it was like a bomb going off. Uh, it felt like a gunshot. If you've ever heard a gunshot, if you're inside a room um, at the gun range or something, pop, wow, man, it just, you can feel it in your chest. That's what this article uh, did to me. And I don't remember when I read it. It would have been probably about 11 years ago. So he, he wrote it 20 years ago. I think I came across it probably 11 years ago. The article is called The Centrality of the Gospel. And we'll go ahead and when, when this podcast is scheduled to come out, we will, we'll, one, we'll add the PDF to the show notes, but we'll also post this article uh, on Realm just so you guys can read it in full yourself. Um, you hear a lot at Sacred City, we talk about having a gospel-centered ministry. Yeah. We talk about gospel-centered this and gospel-centered that, and I'll be releasing a, uh, a book for dads called Gospel Dad, Everything's Gospel. What, what are, what are we, why are we talking like that? I remember people used to say to me, Justin, why aren't we just Jesus-centered? Why aren't we just Jesus-centered? Why are we gospel-centered? Well, the gospel, and this is coming from uh, Keller's article here, the gospel is the central element in the Christian life and continually renews the believer mm. and the church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, that is that was, when I first read it, a surprising statement because I thought the gospel was just for the unbeliever. You know, I was a Christian. I believe the gospel. I believe the gospel. Jesus died for my sins. Boom. Mm. How is the gospel the central element to the Christian life and continually renews the believer and the church? I thought that the believer now just shared the gospel with outsiders and they came to know Jesus and and that's that. You know, I thought basically Christianity was you you get into Christianity by believing the gospel, but then you grow up through hard work and discipline and, you know. Kind of gospel plus. 
Yeah, well, now that's how we would say it. You know, we would say the gospel plus our own effort, Mm -hmm. our own works. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then we would see other people who just didn't, weren't working, and we'd be like, well, yeah, they're Christians, but they're just not, they're just lazy Christians or something. They're just at home, and they're not doing it. And we wouldn't say, well, actually, no, they're not believing the gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, those people are, that's that's different, right? So, um, so for those that don't know what the word gospel actually means, can you kind of break that down for the for the listener that could just be jumping on and checking us out? Yeah, gospel um, means good news. Yeah, it comes from you know evangelion, which is the good news. Even um, here, evangelism in that statement, um, but it just means good news. But it's it's more specifically tied to the good news of who Jesus was, mm-hmm. what Jesus did in his life, yeah. in his death, in his res- resurrection, in his glorification, in his session now at the right hand of the Father as he's renewing all things, right? So the, the gospel is, in, is all inclusive in all of that, and the gospel is even included in what he will do to finally renew and mm-hmm. restore all of creation. Yeah. So let's just kind of get into this article a little bit. Yeah. Um, so... Kind of a foundational principle here is in Galatians 2.14. Paul lays down this principle where um, Peter, even though Peter is a Christian, Peter has believed the gospel, Peter has, the Spirit of God has even showed up to Peter in visions in the book of Acts and showed him that he can eat whatever he wants now and he can... He can be in relationship with anybody, uh, anybody that the Lord brings in. His, there's no like, the the Gentile and Jew divide is over, mm-hmm. right? The, the Gentiles yeah. are no longer unclean. So when we think about that, <clears throat> there's a lot that goes into that. The the Je- Jews stayed away from the Gentiles because they were religiously un- unclean. So it's a religious separation, but that also kind of equated to a cultural separation as well, or mm-hmm. you could even say a racial. segregation as well they saw them it wasn't you know skin color but it was cultural and racial and 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 class and all this kind of it was it was those people are unclean right those Mm -hmm. people are unclean well in galatians 2 peter's eating with the gentiles and then these jews show up and then peter begins to distance himself from the gentiles he begins to fall back let's just say he falls back into his old Mm -hmm prejudices or he falls back into his own his old habits his old um religiosity he's no longer being gospel centered anymore that said these men are no longer clean he's acting like he was a jew before and what paul says paul doesn't put him on he does put him on blast in front of everybody (laughs) but he doesn't call him a racist or call him a religious bigot he says you are no longer living in line Mm -hmm with the truth of the gospel. Yeah. So from that, Keller reasons, from that we see that the Christian life is a process of renewing every dimension of our life, spiritual, psychological, corporate, social, by thinking, hoping, and living out the lines or ramifications of the gospel. Mm. So he's saying the gospel must be applied to everything in our life, mm-hmm. to the way we think, even to our presuppositions about life, to how we feel, to how we relate to people, to how we work, to how we create culture, 
the implications of Galatians 2.14 really reach everywhere. So this is why we say things like, the gospel changes everything. Yeah. It literally changes the way we, we relate to everything, okay? Now, um, there's two implications that Keller wants to see in this article. Uh, implications... Number one, he talks about the power of the gospel. And number two, he talks about um, the sufficiency of the gospel. And then out of these implications, he's going to make a lot of application. And um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of uh, re- he's going to really apply it and mm-hmm. make uh, really good principles and really good examples. So um, implication number one is the gospel isn't just the good news of what Jesus has done. Um, it is the good news, but Romans 1 tells us that it's also the power of God unto salvation. Mm. So that means it's also the blessing of God with benefits that accrue to anyone who comes near. It's the very light of the glory of God itself. Um, that it's it doesn't just bring us power, it is the power itself mm-hmm. unto salvation. Yeah. And so Keller says this, after, we, after the gospel has regenerated us, so when we first put our faith in Jesus Christ, well, actually before that, I'm sorry, uh, the Holy Spirit comes in, regenerates our heart, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're born again now, right? We're yeah. new spiritual creatures. That's when we're converted. It is also the instrument of all continual growth and spiritual progress. We see this from Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. It says, all over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and all of its truth. So the illustration that I'm using in my sermon this week is the gospel is power. Mm-hmm. That is the word dunamis in the Greek where we get dynamite from. Mm-hmm. So think of the explosive power in dynamite. Now we have certain power in ourselves. I'm liking it in my sermon to... The, the gospel is not a tool that we use in the sense like a pulley. A pulley enables us to lift more things, mm-hmm. but all the power of a pulley still rests in us. Mm-hmm. So it might allow us to lift a bigger rock, but still we're limited by our own power. Yeah. As far as dynamite, all dynamite requires from us is to light the fuse, and that dynamite has explosive power. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So... The gospel itself is power to save us, okay? Um, but it's also organic power. And so the, he says it's bearing fruit and growing all over the world. Think of a seed. When a seed has certain inherent power in it, when you plant that seed in the ground, that seed is going to grow up. If you take an oak seed and you plant it next to a sidewalk, that oak tree is going to grow up next to that sidewalk, and eventually those roots are going to bust that sidewalk up. Yeah. That's how powerful it is. Right. But it's not just that powerful that it can grow to a huge oak tree that we could all climb and swing into, and it could actually even knock our house off its foundation. Inherent in that seed is enough power to cover the whole earth mm. with oak trees, yeah. right? Because th- that oak tree grows up, it drops more seeds, and those drop, you know, on and on and on the process goes. And you could literally cover the whole earth. So the gospel is like that too. It's like dynamite power, but it's also like organic growth. It spreads, Mm -hmm. right, from person to person. It also goes deeper in us as we come to understand it and we come to know it. And it causes us to grow up 
in, in the gospel and into Christ like an oak tree would grow up, that we would literally never stop growing. Until mm. we die, we never stop growing in the gospel. Yeah, that's good. <clears throat> so, um, implication two. So that's number one. There's the, the gospel is a power, mm. okay? That, all right, and the second one is the sufficiency of the gospel. So Paul is showing that in the Christian life, we never get beyond the gospel to something more advanced. And I think this is really what Keller is known for here. He says, the gospel is not the first step in, the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it's more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. Mm. The gospel is not the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all process in the kingdom. What do you guys think when you hear that? Yeah, it reminds me of the Colossians series, you know, um, talking about you don't graduate from the gospel. That it's, I mean, it's it's foundational, you know. It's also really comforting because if there's anything else added to the gospel, then I'm in a lot of trouble. Mm. And I think he goes on to talk about that. Yeah, he will. Here, yeah. He will. Uh huh. <clears throat> you got anything? I think it's good. Definitely. Uh, for the for the learner, of course, definitely, if that's your identity, is that you're always learning, right? It doesn't matter if, you know, if you get your master's degree, your doctor's degree um, in theology, you're still always and should be growing and going deeper. Mm. It's not something that you just know. It's also a piece that you have to apply um, in your everyday rhythms, too. That's it, man. So it doesn't matter if you have a Ph.D. You, you, you don't have a Ph.D. in the gospel. Yeah. yeah. Nobody Nobody. graduates from the gospel. Yeah. You're constant in need of it. So Keller, again, here says this. We are not justified by the gospel and then sanctified by obedience. Rather, the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. He references there Galatians 3, 1 through 3, and Colossians 1 through 6, or 1, 6. Listen to this. This is foundational. The gospel is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, Mm -hmm. the power to take us through every barrier, it is very common in the church to think as follows. The gospel is for non-Christians. One needs it to be saved. But once saved, you grow through hard work and obedience. Mm. But Colossians 1.6 shows that this is a mistake. Both confession and hard work that is not arising from and in line with the gospel will not sanctify you. They will strangle you. Mm. All our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. Thus, when Paul left the Ephesians, he committed them, quote, to the word of his grace, which can build you up, Acts 20, 32. So Keller, here we go. The main problem in the Christian life, then, is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We have not used the gospel in and on all parts of our life. Richard Loveless says that most people's problems are just a failure to be oriented to the gospel a failure to grasp and believe it through and through. Luther says that the truth of the gospel is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. The gospel is not easily comprehended. Paul says that the gospel does its renewing work in us only as we understand it in all its truth. 
all of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel, but do not get it. Ooh. The discovery of new implication or application of the gospel, seeing more of its truth, is an important stage of any renewal. This is true for either an individual or a church. Preach. So Keller uh, saying there that our problems in life stem from not being properly oriented to the gospel. So we might be around the gospel. We might be aware of its truth. We might be believing it in some, some of its aspects, some of its implications, and yet not, not in line with the gospel in certain other areas of our life. And if we're not in line with the gospel in certain areas of our life, then we're not going to be producing gospel fruit. Mm, yeah. We're going to be living out of line with the gospel. Our, we're going to be living either hypocritically, mm-hmm. maybe we're going to have a cold, lifeless obedience, our hearts aren't going to be in it. We're not going to ex- be experiencing what God wants us to experience, which is mm-hmm. gospel renewal, which is like, the gospel constantly bearing fruit in our own life, in our relationships, in our family, in our missional communities, in our church, even in our business, in our relationship with unbelievers. If we get out of step with the gospel, our life begins um, to go stale and so, dry. So why do you think it's so hard for the Christian to to live that out? It's, it's, as, it's as if the, the Christian is always trimming bushes but never getting to the root. Well... Um, Keller in this article goes on to describe the two main thieves of the gospel. Um, And I like he quotes Tertullian, a Christian writer in the second and third centuries, who said, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, Mm. so this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. Mm. So think of living in line with the gospel as walking a very sharp ridgeline of a mountain. So you're on the very top of a mountain and you're walking that ridge line. You can fall off to the left yeah. and you can fall off to the right. Mm. Falling off to the left is we could call it moralism mm. or legalism. Thinking that God loves me based upon my own effort, mm-hmm. my own performance, my own hard work, etc. Falling off to the right could be called um, hedonism, which hedonism means basically doing whatever makes you feel good, mm-hmm. ultimately doing whatever mm-hmm. makes you feel good, or relativism, which is it's all relative, it doesn't really matter, or you could call it irreligion. So on the left, you've got religion. On the right, you've got irreligion. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, yeah. On the left, you've got moralism. On the right, you've got um, licentiousness, mm-hmm. right? Just do whatever, you, do whatever, whatever makes you happy. Yeah. Well, w- believing the gospel, walking in line with the gospel is like walking that ridge line. It is not easy. You, mm-hmm. It's so easy to slip off mm-hmm. to the right and to the left. And of mm-hmm. course, we have the flesh, we have our world, and we have the devil who's all trying to pull us off one of the ways. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't care. I mean, it's like in Screw Tape Letters by Lewis, the devil doesn't care how he destroys us. He mm-hmm. just wants to destroy us. Yeah. So if it's easier to d- destroy us through moralism, He'll just try to destroy us through moralism. Mm-hmm. He'll say, hey, yeah, you need to be a good person. Go be a better person than your neighbor. Yeah. And we'll, and here's the deal. While we're trying to be a better person, we, we are not thinking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. We're not resting in the righteousness of Christ. Right. We're not living by faith. And so all of our good works is therefore sin. Yeah. All of that good work is sin. Yeah. And so the devil might try to get us to hell by being good people. 
mm. literally. Or that, or by just throwing off the shackles of religion and show, throwing off the shackles of moralism and you just be you mm. and you do what makes you feel good, you do what you want to do um, and follow your own heart. Both of these are a rejection of the gospel. <clears throat> um, one kind of sees truth without grace and one sees grace without truth, mm. in, in mm. a sense. Yeah, that's good. So Keller builds this out, and he says this. Uh, the moralism, religion thief, so how does moralism and religion steal joy and power? Moralism is the view that you are acceptable God or the world or others or yourself through your attainments. Moralists do not have to be religious, but they are. When they are, their religion is pretty conservative and filled with rules. Sometimes moralists have a view of God as very holy and just, this view will lead either to a self-hatred because they can't live up to the standard or self-inflation or pride because they think they have lived up to the standard. It is ironic that inferiority and superiority complexes have the very same root. Mm. Whether the moralist ends up smug and superior or crushed and guilty just depends on how high the standards are and on his or her natural advantages such as family, intelligence, looks, willpower... Moralistic people can be deeply religious, but they have no transforming joy or power. Mm. So that's the, uh, the the moralism religion thief, the relativism relativism irreligion thief. Um, Kevin, why don't you read that one for us? Yeah. Relativists are usually irreligious, or else they prefer what is called liberal religion. On the surface, they are more happy and tolerant than moralistic or religious people. Although they may be highly idealistic in some areas, such as politics, they believe that everyone needs to determine what is right or wrong for themselves. They are not convinced that God is just and must punish sinners. Their belief in God will tend to picture him as loving or as an impersonal force. They may talk a great deal about God's love, but since they do not think of themselves as sinners, God's love for humankind costs him nothing. If God accepts us, it is because he is so welcoming or because we are not so bad. The gospel's concept of God's love is far richer and deeper and more electrifying. That's right. <clears throat> okay, so this is what we always fall into. Either I don't think of myself as a sinner, and therefore I don't really need the grace of God, mm. and God's just kind of this impersonal force that loves me because he loves me. Or I can try to follow the rules really hard, and I lose sight of the gospel that I'm actually a sinner who fails the standards of God, and I need the grace of God, and I become really pride, proudful, right, mm -hmm. and, and look down on other people. Now, this is what's interesting. Both of these viewpoints, the irreligious and the religious, uh, the moralist and the hedonist, they're like falling off on the right and the left side. But what they have in common is they are both ways to avoid Jesus as Savior and to keep control of their lives. Mm -hmm. So the moralist avoids Jesus because he just needs a set of rules. Just give me the rules to follow and I'm going to do my best at following these rules. Yeah. And so they think of themselves as pretty competent. I can go follow these rules. I'm a good person. I'm way better than this person, that person, the other. I, it's, it, it's an attempt to actually avoid Jesus. Yeah. Avoid needing the righteousness of Jesus. And checking the box and making it about themselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 It's like the Pharisee who looked at the 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 guy who was beating his chest in, in, the, in the prayer service, mm -hmm. and the Pharisee said, God, thank you that I'm not like that man over there. <laughs> you know? 
And God's like, yeah, you're not. You're not repentant. You're not even a Christian. Yeah. Um, and they're also both um, distorted views of the real God. Mm. So they don't view God as holy and separate and um, righteous. They view, they view him as, you know... Um, you think they view him as a, a kind of a, a piece of like their upbringing um, and the culture they're around, um, how they view God as father? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. It says this, without a full understanding of the work of Christ, the reality of God's holiness will make his grace unreal or the reality of God's love will make his holiness unreal. Only the gospel, that we are so sinful that we need to be saved by utter, utter, utter grace or utterly by grace, allows us to see God as he really is. The gospel shows us a God far more holy than the legalist can bear. Mm. He had to die because we could not satisfy his holy demands. Yeah. And yet far more merciful than a humanist can conceive. He had to die because he loved us. Yeah. Yeah. So both of these ways try to avoid Jesus. Both of these ways have a distorted view of God. And they both deny our sin and our culpability before. Mm. So therefore, they lose joy and power of grace. Um, so it says this, it, it is obvious that relativistic, irreligious people deny the depth of sin and the, thus the message, God loves you, has no power for them. But although religious persons may be extremely penitent and sorry for their sins, they see sins as simply a failure to live up to standards by which they are saving themselves. Mm -hmm. They do not see sin as the deeper self-righteousness and self-centeredness through which they are trying to live lives independent of God. So they go to Jesus for forgiveness. When they go to Jesus' forgiveness, they go only as a way to cover up the gaps in their project of self-salvation. Mm -hmm. And when people say, I know God is forgiving, but I can't forgive myself, they mean that they reject God's grace and insist that they be worthy of his favor. So even religious people with low self-esteem, are actually in their state because they will not see the depth of sin. Mm. They see it only as rule-breaking, not as rebellion and self-salvation. Mm. So not being able to see um, myself, my sin for what it really is, um, keeps me from really leaning on the grace of God and seeing Jesus uh, for what he is and for who he is and seeing the gospel for what it is, mm. right? And so I'm never going to feel the joy and the power of the gospel if if I think the gospel is just something that helps me become a little bit better person. Yeah. I'm already pretty good, but the gospel just fills in the gaps for me. Yeah. We don't actually see ourselves that all of our good works were attempt to avoid Jesus and self-salvation. Mm. Like all of our good works are literally saying to Jesus, hey, I don't really need you. I'm actually going to try to earn my way to God my own. And then when we do believe in Jesus or we repent of our sin, it's only because we've, we've made a little mistake here and a little mistake there. Mm -hmm. It's not because deep down in our hearts we're self-righteous and we want to do everything in our power to avoid needing the grace of God. Right. Mm. So this gives us, the gospel gives us a whole new way of seeing God. Mm -hmm. We get to see God as he is. And this is what... Um, John Calvin and his institutes, he started with 
No man can know God unless they know himself. No man can know himself unless he knows God. Because we need to hold both those things together. When I see God as he is in scripture, I come to realize how holy and how separate and how high his standard of perfection is. And in, in the light of that knowledge, I see my own imperfection. Yeah. In the glorious light of the face of Jesus, I see how wicked of a man I am. I see how many times I try to build my own self-righteousness instead of leaning on the righteousness of Christ by faith. Yeah. And then, um, and then that, that enables me to under, understand myself in a greater way, mm-hmm. right? And then as I come to understand my sin and myself in a greater way, I get to the bottom of these rabbit holes that I find. Why do I keep doing that? Come to this self-knowledge. Then it helps me see the beauty of God in a greater way or the graciousness of God. Man, he died for me when I was still a sinner. And I come to realize how great of a sinner I am. Yeah. The more I come to that, to the depth, understanding the depths of that, the, the greater the grace of God is to me and the more joy it brings me, yeah. right? So those two things are interconnected. So without a knowledge of our extreme sin, the payment of the cross seems trivial and does not electrify or transform us. But without a knowledge of Christ completely satisfying life and death, the knowledge of sin would crush us or move us to deny and repress it. Take away either the knowledge of sin or the knowledge of grace and people's lives are not changed. They will either be crushed by the moral law or run from it in anger. Mm. So the gospel is not that we go from being irreligious to religious, but that we realize our reasons for both our religiosity and our irreligiosity were essentially the same and essentially wrong. We were seeking to be our own savior and thereby keep control of our own life. When we trust in Christ as our Redeemer, we turn from trusting either self-determination or self-denial, either hedonism or moralism for our own salvation. Mm. So, this is one reason why the Gospel 1 is so powerful, but also, in a sense, so scary. Because when we're trying to save our own self by either irreligion or religion, we're Mm. in control. Mm We are the ones determining what we need to do, what we need to give up, what rules we're going to follow, how hard we're going to work. <clears throat> but if we're saved by sheer grace, nothing but the grace of God, if we deserve nothing but hell, mm-hmm. hell, fire, and brimstone is all that we've deserved in this life, mm. then Jesus could ask anything from us. And how could we deny him? Mm. Yeah. Right? Now, I think this is one of the reasons why American Christians um, don't want to believe the gospel, don't want to live in line with the gospel. And one of the reasons, we're not sending very very many missionaries anywhere anymore. We don't know how to risk. I think we've got a small gospel, so we have a small response to the gospel. Right? We have a small concept of our own sin, and so we have a small response to the gospel of grace. We have a small view of God, and so we have a small response to God, right? So this is what we mean when the gospel is the answer to every problem. 
the calling for the Christian is to take the gospel and work out its implications in every area of our life. How we deal with our money, how we relate to our spouse, how we lead the church, how we participate in sports, how we educate our children, how we work in politics, how on and on and on it goes. So what does it look like to uh, see those flaws in yourself? How do you how do you see those things? If you've been living a life for so long, um, what does it look like on a day-to-day basis is it you know being around people or well first and foremost it means looking into the mirror of god's word Mm. yeah Yeah. so god's word is going to be the divine truth that shows us um where we don't lie he's it's the mirror that we look in and we're going to see our imperfections right we're going to see how untrustworthy we are Mm -hmm. how we lack self-control how we lack humility and what we, how we lack understanding of grace, how we lack um, joy, how we all these things. So you're going to go to Scripture, and you're going to see where you don't line up, too. One, okay? Two, you're going to go to Scripture, and you're going to see what Jesus has done for us. You're going to see how the gospel works itself out in the lives of people who actually believe it. So Paul and Peter in Galatians is a, is a really good example of how the gospel is meant to work itself out when it comes to um, religion and we could say race and culture, like superiority, right? Um, or, um, yeah, basically looking down on other people. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember the, the, what, the biblical term. The biblical Bible doesn't talk about racism. The Bible talks about the sin of superiority and the sin of, um, oh, man, my brain's going dead. Um, partiality. Partiality. Thank you for that. Gotcha. Uh, the sin of partiality, and so we we see that in in Galatians, and so that's um, <clears throat> now you can have, and, and Keller kind of gets into this a little bit. Let's let's just talk about this example of racism and how the gospel is has a different response than moralism and liberalism. Okay. In moralism, moralists tend to be really proud of their culture. They easily fall into cultural imperialism, so wanting their culture to dominate the rest of the world, and they try to attach spiritual significance to their cultural norms to make themselves feel morally superior to other people. This happens because moralistic people are very insecure since they take the eternal law quite seriously and throw and know deep down that they cannot keep it. Therefore, they use cultural differences to buttress their sense of righteousness. Now, the liberal view, or the relativistic view, is different. The opposite error from cultural imperialism is cultural relativism. So cultural imperialism says, all my culture is the best culture, all aspects of my culture is, is the right, the one way, what's good. Cultural relativism says basically all cultures are equal. Mm -hmm. All cultures are good. Um, Now, the gospel corrects both of those understandings of culture and race. The gospel approach to race says Christians know that intolerance does not stem so much from a belief in truth as a lack of belief in grace. Mm. So the gospel leads us to be somewhat critical of all cultures, including our own, because there is truth. And every culture is going to get 
probably going to get some things right in line with God's word and some things wrong, right? But to realize that we can feel morally superior to no one. After all, we are all saved by grace alone and therefore a non-Christian neighbor may be more moral and wise than I am. This gives the Christian a radically different posture from that of either moralists or relativists. So the gospel gives us a different way of understanding race. We don't say, my race is the best race, my culture is the best culture, nor do we say, all cultures are equal. Rather, we critique all cultures, including our own, according to the gospel, right? What aspects of my culture are in line with the gospel? What aspects of my culture are not in line with the gospel, Hmm. right? And we need to be willing and able to see those things and critique those things and and challenge those things. And when a white Christian is unable to see those things and critique those things in his own race or his own culture, and he's only going to see the things wrong in, let's say, black culture and critique those things in black culture, he's not being gospel-centered. And he's doing what Peter did in Galatians. Now, that goes both ways. African-American culture, same thing. Sees his culture as good, right, true, beautiful, whatever. He sees everything wrong in white culture, and he only critiques what's in white culture. Well, the Christian is Christian first. So we have to critique what's gospel-centered about white culture and what's gospel-centered about black culture, and we want to bring those two things together to make a more God-honoring culture, a more gospel-centered culture. Right? right? That's that's how the gospel changes our approach to race. <clears throat> okay? Um, any thoughts on that? So so that that's not necessarily saying that you're not black or you're not white or you're not Mexican, but at the same time, like, you're a Christian first, though, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. there should be a difference. Maybe I should say this. Like, are you... I don't know if this is the right way to say this. I might get in trouble. Like, yeah, are you black first and then Christian? Mm. Are you white first and then Christian? Are you Christian first and then black? Mm. It's totally okay to be a unapologetically black Christian, right? Unapologetically white Christian. That this is who God made us to be. But we have to, we can't be, un, we can't uncritically adopt everything from black culture or white culture without bringing it to bear on the gospel, right? Or bringing the gospel to bear on it. I'm sorry, bringing the gospel to bear on it. How does the gospel inform the way that I'm a father? Well, we want our ideas of fatherhood to be informed by our faith, not from our culture, Mm. right? That's one one example, Um, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, totally okay to be a Mexican Mexican Christian. And it's okay to even believe that if you're in Mexico or whatever, that you you love your country and you're you're a Mexican Christian. That's that's totally okay. But we have to be able to see how our culture has been formed by unchristian things yeah. and repent of it. Mm-hmm. Right? And repent of it. Are there any special considerations um, for trying to speak into those things? across cultural or racial lines. What are you thinking? 
So I, I don't have a specific example, but I'm thinking if uh, if an African American brother notices some um, some I guess sin coming from my cultural presuppositions, then is there anything speaking the truth in love without offending, or just bring the gospel to bear? Well, bring the gospel to bear, but we we always as soon as you offend someone, they it shuts off communication right. most of the time. Unless you have such a great relationship with them, like you're really brothers or sisters, mm-hmm. that you you kind of offend each other all the time. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like just part of you, you, you brothers, so you know you can do yeah, that. Yeah. So we don't want to offend. The gospel is always going to be foolishness mm-hmm. um, to people at first, and so, but yeah, that's that's what we we need to do with one another. So, and and let me just speak to this issue of race. For, so for the like. Our country was founded on many Christian principles. Um, the Christian idea of liberty, the Christian idea, idea of human rights, the Christian idea of uh, even religious freedoms, and, and, and just on, I could go on and on and on. And yet, our country missed it horribly on the issue of race. And you could say it. So I'll say this. We, in one sense, we, we weren't, Christian nation in the sense that we were like like Britain or somewhere like that. We didn't have an, a, a church, a state church, right? And everyone who signed the Declaration of Independence and all that wasn't a Christian. Mm-hmm. But we were founded on primarily Christian presuppositions. Yeah. But my our goal as Christians isn't to get back to that because that was still too that was still pre-Christian. Right. We weren't Christian enough mm-hmm. that we could actually see the clear evidence in scripture that said man stealing is a sin that's punishable by death right. in the old testament yeah. it said yeah. that and so and but we, and yet we were doing that we were we were literally stealing slaves and enslave, enslaving african americans so it we have to acknowledge that fact mm-hmm. and we need to be quick to say that was sin that was wrong many christians were complicit in that and they weren't Christian enough. They didn't take the gospel to bear on the issue of race. Right. Mm-hmm. They saw how the gospel Im- impacted um, politics. They saw how gospel impacted finances and personal property. They saw how the gospel impacted a lot of other areas of personal piety and moralism. And yet they didn't see how the gospel applied to race. Yeah. Huge blind spot. Mm-hmm. We need to, like white Americans, we have to come out and own that. We yeah. have to, to say... That was a huge blind spot. Christians were the Christians who were doing that weren't seeing the implications of the gospel. They weren't living in line with the gospel. But we also acknowledge we also want to acknowledge that Christians were also the ones who brought the end to the slave trade. Mm-hmm. Like William Wilberforce was a white Christian who argued to the end of his life to abolish the slave trade yeah. and, Britain, and then that flowed over here eventually long time later to to America. So again, gospel renewal is for everyone. We all constantly need to be bringing the gospel to bear on the sins in our life, on the fears in our life, on the insecurities of our life, on the ways that we're dealing with things in the world. And this is what it means to grow as a Christian to have the gospel go deeper and deeper and deeper in you and produce more and more and more fruits. So that doesn't necessarily mean to um, live out of shame of that sin, though, right? 
because I feel like there's a lot of people that um, they keep seeing their sin, they keep seeing their sin, they keep seeing their sin, and then they're just always joyless and just, you know, seem drained. Right. If you are joyless, then you're not looking at Jesus. So I can't remember who said it, but he said, for every one look at our sin, we should take 10 looks at our Savior. Yeah. Okay. So we do, especially if you're more self-righteous and you're more moralistic bent, you got to take more time looking at your sin and, and getting in your heart and seeing the dark corners. But for every, if you're prone to depression, if you're prone to dark thoughts, if you're prone to dark nights of the soul, if you're prone to feeling shame and guilt, take one look at your sin and yeah. take 10 looks at your savior yeah. because we have great sin but we have an even greater Savior. And we've been given the righteousness of Christ. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Jesus despised the shame. For the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross for us. He purchased joy for us. He purchased security. He purchased, I'll dare say, happiness, that we can live the life and life more abundantly. So you can never stop looking at your sin, but you can dwell on your sin too much. And I would say usually when we dwell on our t- sin too much, it's again a form of legalism mm-hmm. and moralism because we really think we should be better. Yeah. We don't believe the Bible that says we were dead in our trespasses and sins and we're still wicked sinners. We really think we should be better. Yeah. And instead, take 10 looks at Jesus who is perfect in your place and gives you his righteousness on your behalf because you could never earn his righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. I remember John Piper at a conference I was at in a Q&A, they asked him, what caused you to doubt? What caused you to doubt God? Piper said, the painful slowness of my own sanctification. Mm. Like, even Piper, like, I'm not who I wish I'd be. Wish I, I'm not who I think I should be. I'm not holy enough, righteous enough. I'm not good enough. And that's at the end of his life, end of his ministry, you know? So we, have, we can't look at our own self for, ourself, for our righteousness. We have to look away from ourselves to Christ. All right, so this is kind of the theological underpinnings of this article. We're going to go ahead, and we might even make this article, or might even make this podcast into two or three. The next time, we're going to look at the personal and individual ramifications of the gospel. So how does a person um, apply the gospel to discouragement and the physical world and love and relationships and on and on and on and go? That's where we're going to go next time. If you've got any guys, if you guys have any questions, please email me, Justin Dean at sacredcitychurch.com. If you have time, rate us on iTunes. That really helps other people find us. Share us on social media if you're there. Pass it on to your friends. Um, hopefully, this is an encouragement to you guys. We love you. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.